0: Hello and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. About 12 million people are what are often called dual eligibles, people enrolled in both Medicaid and Medicare. The group includes frail elders and people with a wide range of disabilities. Now, since Medicaid eligibility is tied to having a low income, this population often has significant unmet social needs in addition to their need for medical care. Almost a third of dual eligibles are enrolled in what are called DSNPs, Dual Eligible Special Needs Plans. The DSNP designation was created in 2006 and was designed to improve care for people enrolled in both Medicare and Medicaid specifically by improving integration between these two programs that actually function in quite different ways. Are DSNPs providing better care than other options for people who are duly eligible? That's the question we'll discuss in today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Eric Roberts, assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health. Dr. Roberts and his co author, Jennifer Meller, published a paper in the September 2022 issue of Health Affairs comparing the experiences of dual eligibles enrolled in DSNPs with those enrolled in Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare. They found some positive results for people in DSNPs, but not uniformly for all populations. We'll discuss these findings in more detail during today's episode. Dr. Roberts, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm looking forward to this conversation about dual eligibles, a term that people often use sort of loosely or, you know, we all know, yeah, they're in both programs, but can you say a little bit more? This is 12 million people. Tell us a little bit about them and particularly their health and social needs.
1: Sure. And this is a fairly heterogeneous group of people, uh, even though we tend to think of them as all medically and socially vulnerable. So to describe the duals, it's first helpful to just define how people get to be duals. To qualify for Medicare, individuals have to be at least 65 years old, have a disabling uh, condition, or uh, end stage renal disease. And to qualify for Medicaid, as you alluded to, they have to have low incomes and limited assets. So this makes the dual eligible population high need, both in terms of its medical complexity and its health-related social needs. Within the dual population, there's a high prevalence of uh, comorbidities, including diabetes and hypertension. About two in five dual eligibles have behavioral health disorders, like depression, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder. 40% of duals got on Medicare because of a disability, and as a consequence of this, many have difficulties performing activities of daily living. Things like eating, bathing, or dressing. Some also have intellectual and developmental disabilities and co-occurring behavioral and physical health comorbidities. So as a consequence, this population's healthcare needs are complex, overlapping, and heterogeneous, depending on what subset of duals you're looking at. Many duals have needs for long-term services and supports to help them perform activities of daily living. They often have substantial behavioral healthcare needs, chronic condition management needs, and most importantly, needs for care coordination across this range of services. And one size does often not fit all for this population because of the varied medical and social risks within it. I want to also just emphasize quickly that Medicare and Medicaid are each feeling different needs for care in this population and this also contributes to a fair amount of complexity. Medicare is the main payer for inpatient and outpatient care and prescription drugs, while Medicaid will pay for long-term services and supports and some behavioral health care. Medicaid will also pay for Medicare's premiums and cost-sharing. And it's this kind of bifurcated structure that often makes it hard to coordinate care for very complex patients. And that's part of the intent of DSNPs is to resolve some of those care coordination challenges.
0: Yeah, so let's go a little deeper into that. That was an excellent overview. And uh, if you take the need for coordination and the heterogeneity, We've had Medicare Advantage for a while. You have a capitated payment to a plan to take care of the uh, broad needs of someone on Medicare. Uh, What makes a DSNIP different from traditional Medicare Advantage?
1: Yeah, so DSNIPs are Medicare Advantage plans that exclusively serve dual eligibles. Other Medicare Advantage plans are not restricted in who they enroll, but Medicare Advantage plans must only enroll dual eligibles. In principle, this gives a DSNP the opportunity to specialize, to kind of tailor its model of care, its provider networks, and its supplemental benefits to the health care needs of, of its enrollees. So rather than sort of addressing sort of the needs of an average Medicare beneficiary, a DSNP can specialize in the populations it's intended to serve. Another feature of DSNPs that sort of differentiate them from other Medicare Advantage plans are that all DSNPs are required to have contracts with state Medicaid programs. And these contracts specify the plan's responsibilities for coordinating care with Medicaid. Most of these contracts only require DSNPs to engage in a fairly limited amount of care coordination. For example, notifying Medicaid of when a beneficiary is admitted to the hospital. But some contracts require DSNPs to attain higher levels of what we'll call Medicare and Medicaid integration. And this can take on a variety of flavors, but it could range from greater administrative alignment um, so, greater care coordination across Medicare and Medicaid managed care to uh, features as, as sort of extensive as covering Medicare and Medicaid spending for the same enrollees. This is still relatively rare, but these contracts are a focus of policymaking because this is where we think that there may be an opportunity to attain greater integration between DSNPs and Medicaid and to really realize the full potential of DSNPs to kind of enhance and customize care for duals.
0: Well, this notion of what the potential is from integration is something I want to explore with you in more detail. Before we get there, um, we ought to at least cover the findings of the paper. Uh, you have, after all, done an analysis looking at certain outcomes for people enrolled in DSNPs, comparing them to people in Medicare Advantage or in traditional fee-for-service Medicare. So before we describe integration, does it is there evidence that it benefits the enrollees if it's through a DSNP?
1: The evidence is that it's rather limited. So, just as a brief overview of the findings, we looked at how dual eligibles, self-reported access to care, use of care and satisfaction with care differed across d other Medicare Advantage plans that don't exclusively serve dual eligibles, and traditional Medicare. And we did this in five years of the Medicare Community uh, Current Beneficiary Survey, which is a survey of Medicare beneficiaries, We had about 10,000 individuals in the survey. Um, What we found was that DSNPs and regular Medicare Advantage plans both tended to outperform traditional Medicare in certain areas of access, preventive service use, and satisfaction with care. But DSNPs did not perform better than regular Medicare Advantage plans in many of these areas. DSNPs only performed better than regular Medicare Advantage in a few areas of satisfaction. For example, out-of-pocket costs, and the ability to get care from specialists, and in patient-reported access to dental care. But DSNPs did not perform better in, these cr- in other crucial areas that may reflect the um, extent of care coordination that DSNPs are intended to attain with Medicaid. So this really suggests that DSNPs as a whole have not provided better care to dual eligibles than other Medicare Advantage plans. And this is consistent with some other evidence out there that d- performed similar comparisons using patient surveys.
0: Now, I always wanna be careful not to over-read one result here, but uh, the notion that it's similar to a regular MA plan suggests to me that there may be certain benefits, particularly with respect to access and coverage, for moving from traditional Medicare into an MA plan. But this whole notion of integration with Medicaid, a whole separate program, that was the reason for creating DSNPs. And as I read your paper, not much evidence that that
1: part of what the goal of creating DSNPs was has played out just yet. I think that's a fair assessment, but I should say that this partly reflects that DSNPs operationally have achieved a fairly low level of integration with Medicaid. The potential for integration exists. These contracts with state Medicaid programs do provide opportunities for Medicaid to really coordinate care with Medicaid managed care programs and provide a more unified range of benefits that are integrated within a managed care plan, but I should say that most enrollees in DSNPs are not in those types of highly integrated products. Most of them still see a DSNP as a separate plan from their Medicaid coverage, and they're navigating two separate insurance programs. So we're seeing evidence that DSNPs are not that much better than regular Medicare Advantage plans because DSNPs are not that differentiated still from regular Medicare Advantage plans in these areas of integration where I think there's a real need to improve the delivery of Medicare and Medicaid services for duals. So on the one hand, this shows that there's some unfulfilled potential. Uh, On the other hand, I think we have to sort of stress that that, um, the possibility for integration has not been fully realized. And so this is an area uh, where policymakers are really intent on making some changes.
0: Well, you know, that's what we like to talk about at Health Affairs. Um, Before we talk about those policy changes, uh, anyone interested in health equity uh, should pay particular attention to duels. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about both the uh, demographic profile of people who are duels and the findings in your paper that show different results uh, by race and ethnicity.
1: Sure. I think one of the key demographic features of the dual population to understand is that duels are disproportionately black, Hispanic, or other people of color. Nearly one-half of duals are people of color, and nearly two-thirds of D-SNP enrollees are people of color. And by the way, this is kind of consistent with the fact that Medicare Advantage plans disproportionately serve Medicare beneficiaries of color. DSNPs are not that different in that respect, but they um, serve many of these enrollees. So, whether d provide relatively better care than other types of Medicare coverage for dual eligibles is critical for health equity. What we found in this paper was somewhat concerning. In the few areas where DSNPs performed better than regular Medicare Advantage plans overall, for example, access to dental care, satisfaction with availability of care from specialists, only non-Hispanic white duels reported getting better care in DSNPs than in other Medicare Advantage plans. So this suggests that um, some of the benefits of DSNPs, while limited, don't seem to be realized equitably among racial and ethnic groups. Enrolled in the program, and uh, you know this is a critical concern and something that policymakers have been attentive to. I'll say that Macpac, in its most recent report to Congress, highlighted health equity as a key goal of policymaking in DSNPS, um, and the need to make equity a, an explicit goal of integration policy um, as uh, policymakers contemplate reforms to the DSNIP model moving forward. So this result really, I think. Uh, resonates with those recommendations and underscores a better need for evaluating health equity among DSNP enrollees, and, and pushing plans to address remaining inequities.
0: Well, I am, uh, i I'm, I'm concerned that the findings show that integration hasn't really happened, but I'm, I take from you that the efforts to integrate are still pretty young, and so. I want to talk to you about sort of what integration would look like, what some of the potential is, um, and as you said, what some of the policy uh, questions are that or policy opportunities are for making integration more likely. Uh, We'll cover those topics after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Roberts about whether or not people enrolled in DSNPs, a dual eligible special need plans, are having a better experience than those in uh, traditional Medicare or in Medicare Advantage. Before the break, we talked a lot about the findings, but as you described to our listeners, efforts in integration are still pretty basic. Um, so I want to ask your help in sort of painting a picture here. You noted earlier on that Medicare and Medicaid actually pay for fairly different services. They play, as you said, different roles for this population. You also noted that the population itself is quite heterogeneous. So I wonder if you can give us a little clinical lens here into what it looks like to care for these patients or this population or some subset of them, and what not integrated
1: care would look like and how that might differ from what integrated care would look like. Sure, and just one, one example that kind of comes to mind are duels with behavioral health conditions, which, um, you know, who are overrepresented among duels compared to other Medicare beneficiaries, and particularly in the non-elderly disabled dual population, which is quite unique. So, individuals with behavioral health conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, often don't just have those conditions. They have a much higher rate of uh, physical health comorbidities, for example, obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. And yet, from the payer's perspective, Medicare is the primary payer for the physical health care services. Medicaid will pay for some of the behavioral health care services. And then, if those individuals have long term care needs, Um, That's primarily covered by Medicaid and so The from a clinical perspective these kind of conditions are not separable, right? They sort of co-occur and they um, There's this sort of two-way relationship between sort of you know Mental health conditions and physical health yet. We've kind of created this arbitrary bifurcation of payment systems so the conceptual argument in favor of integration is that one pair would be responsible for the full range of services that duals use. And the question is, how do we get there? DSNPs are intended to be a platform for getting there, but they have not gotten us there yet uh, in in a complete sense because DSNPs are still by and large separately administered and financed for Medicaid. So from the patient's perspective, they're navigating two separate benefits that are covering these separate but complementary health services to address their range of healthcare needs. So, where we're going from DSNPs is in sort of more integrated breeds of DSNPs where one managed care plan will cover the Medicare and Medicaid spending for the same patients. Now, this has not been sort of standardized yet, and there is variation in these plans and whether they will cover both behavioral health and long term care or just one or the other. And so, what, where we're at with policymaking is figuring out how to design these plans in a way that covers an appropriate range of services while recognizing the fact that the administrative process of integrating coverage is still really complex and it involves this sort of um, interaction between a state Medicaid program and Medicare to figure out how to actually affect integration. And so the, the goal is to sort of make this arbitrary distinction between what Medicare and Medicaid covers go away, but how we get there is still relatively new and and has not been formalized or standardized yet. And this has big implications for the sort of vulnerable subgroups of dual eligibles, those with behavioral health conditions or developmental disabilities, um, where I think we have yet to match the model to the patient. And so it's the next step in really thinking about this is how to design these models in a way that better coordinates care across the programs but is attentive to the varied needs of different subpopulations of duels, And the evidence to guide those policy changes is almost non-existent at this point.
0: Well, uh, you know, decades ago, literally, when I ran the Medicaid uh, program in Colorado, I would always talk to colleagues in Medicaid who said, you know, where we pay to meet social needs, the savings accrue to Medicare. And uh, so we knew from a the perspective of the the patient, the enrollee, that it was a good thing to do, but if we were arguing for resources, it was hard to get them. Um, And it never seemed to make a lot of sense. We knew we weren't doing best by the patient. Uh, So this notion of financial integration has always been out there as uh, the ideal way to optimize resource allocation. but until you're there the examples you gave i have to say earlier on of integration like letting someone know when they've been admitted to the hospital that's that sounds pretty basic to me it does it's uh, you, you can't i it's hard for me to imagine that that's really fundamentally going to change people's experience of care although you certainly prefer they notify than not
1: well that's true so a couple of remarks uh, to, to your points there this this Idea of sort of Medicare and Medicaid having conflicting financial incentives has long been recognized by policymakers. It's probably one of many examples of what I'll call the wrong pocket problem in healthcare. You know, I do something that saves money, but the savings accrue to someone else, and so that you know blunts the incentive to do the good thing. Um, and so you know, the dual eligibles are but one example of many cases where this occurs in healthcare. Now, the idea is maybe if we put the you know, financing of these programs together, we would actually affect clinical integration or we would achieve clinical integration. I think that there is still, and that and that we'll do more than simply notify Medicaid of when a patient is admitted to the hospital, that there will be within the plan sort of a real focus on coordinating care across the range of services that duals use. What that looks like and how that, how the elements of a successfully clinically integrated plan could be disseminated Think aren't very well known and it's a bit of a black box and frankly this is the this is the challenge where sort of theory and practice have this chasm between them because we have this idea that financial integration will resolve all these conflicts but how that looks in practice how that gets customized to different populations is it you know housing services for unstably housed duals what types of home and community based services we tend to think of those as one homogeneous group of services but it's quite varied um, what types of behavioral health care? Um, I think all of that is not well understood, and so it leaves states and plans, which have a great deal of, uh, you know, sort of have a sort of significant influence over how integration actually gets implemented with a lot of uncertainty about how to do this in an effective way.
0: You know, uh, the, your, your notion of a chasm between theory and practice, uh, is, it seems just right. and policymakers looking at sort of this tool of financial integration think if we just did that everything would fall into place and what you're saying and it's certainly the experience I've had around this topic is we don't actually know how to translate the aligned financial incentives into appropriate care and you talked about clinical integration but this is really clinical integration and clinical social integration both. Um, and we need to learn. And the only people who learn are people who actually do it, actual people enrolled in systems that are trying to figure this out. And uh, this is a very vulnerable population. So when the financial integration models were first proposed, there's a lot of pushback on the speed with which states were uh, asking to do this integration. And the numbers uh, were, were cut way back. It sounds like we are still very much on a, on a learning curve. And although we'd like to learn faster, maybe we just have to accept that that's where we are.
1: I think CMS is, a couple of thoughts there. CMS is definitely pushing us in a learning direction. They are formalizing some integration standards that uh, different plans have to attain. Um, there is clearly an opportunity to learn as these models are implemented. Um, so some of this will, will be learning through doing. Um, You know on pushing states too fast or pushing plans too fast I think a a bigger concern for me actually is and this came up in the financial alignment initiative and just to set the context this was uh, these were demonstration programs to attain integration that were authorized under the Affordable Care Act the big one of the big pushbacks came from the beneficiary community and the provider community over concern that what it meant to be in an integrated product whether people could maintain continuity of access to their primary care providers was not adequately explained. And there's some evidence that it was particularly poorly explained for non-English speakers and racial ethnic minorities who opted out of these integrated models at even higher rates than uh, uh, white individuals. And even Health Affairs has published some of this evidence in uh, Health Affairs Forefront. Um, So part of this will be sort of You know advancing the evidence through incremental policy making and part of this will be also getting the integrated models sort of better translated to their end users. Um, Otherwise, we're not going to have beneficiary experience to study and learn from. Um, And I really think that these things go hand in hand. We can talk about sort of what integration means in the abstract or even in a clinical sense. But I think, you know, in many cases from the beneficiary's perspective, this is not adequately explained at all and in fact my study and, and others raised some concerns that this may be particularly inadequately described for vulnerable subgroups of duels. And so if we're going to move the needle forward, we need to both sort of engage in some policy trial and error evaluation, but also really keep in mind the end user and better translate what this means for the beneficiary and adapt to the beneficiary's needs. And I think that that is an area where the financial alignment initiative was a bit flat-footed.
0: That's very, uh, it it seems like the right balance to strike. So let's just ask sort of a big question here. Given what you found, given the pace of change, is it that the D-SNP designation or model is sort of not really the right one? Or is it that we're a little too early and we need to give it more time? Or do we need to have higher expectations for them? Uh, Where are we in the D-SNP experiment in your mind?
1: Well, I would say, uh, to to begin, I think that the DSNIP model is here to stay and is an important chassis to build off of. DSNIPs are the um, largest permanently authorized managed care model to do this work of integration. Now, whether they've achieved it is, as we've discussed, um, of, of concern and remains an area for growth. Um, Congress permanently authorized DSNPs in 2018, so this is likely to be the most sort of scalable, realistic way of moving forward. But um, there is a fair amount of heterogeneity among D-SNPs in the level of integration that they've attained. And there's a lot more to do to kind of standardize, a cr- well, both to learn from what D-SNPs are doing, to identify elements of D-SNPs that actually do improve care and advance health equity for duals and figure out how to then tailor those to different populations and disseminate them. And we are not at that stage yet. So I am, I am not inclined to say that we should scrap this model, but I am inclined to say that we need to improve upon it. And where we can improve upon it is by figuring out what elements of integrated plan design work and for whom, and then for sharing that evidence with states and plans. Because there's a menu of options that everyone has on the table within this dsNp Kind of idea. What does integration mean? How does it get applied in individual plans? And uh, a, a real need for better evidence on, on how this can actually get effectuated.
0: Well, as we come to a close, I wonder if you could say what slice of that is on your research uh, agenda? It's a big, uh, complicated topic. Where are you focused right now?
1: So I am very excited about this. I uh, am submitting uh, a grant to look at the effects of different Medicare Medicaid integration models and in DSNPs, and we're really going to look at two of these newer varieties of DSNPs that CMS formalized through recent regulatory changes. They're called highly integrated DSNPs or d SNPs, and fully integrated dual eligible SNPs or Fide uh, SNPs. And I promise, when all this gets cleaned up, we'll have tidy SNPs. Um, <laughs> Um, and really trying to understand, okay, what, what, are dis- what are the key distinctions among these models? Which ones perform better and for whom? Recognizing the fact that the dual eligible population is heterogeneous. So the effects of a model for duals with behavioral health conditions may be different from the effects of a model for be- duals with uh, other chronic health conditions, physical health conditions. So really understanding that heterogeneity. Um, and uh, and then doing a fair amount of work to understand the variation at the plan and state level and how this notion of an integrated SNP actually gets operationalized. My hope is that by looking under the hood, we will start to drill down into the key elements of DSNP design that actually can achieve what policymakers have hoped for these plans, but have yet to have been realized.
0: Well, Dr. Roberts, I thank you for the paper and for focusing on a very uh, high risk, high need population that uh, has not been particularly served well. We have these two exceptionally important programs for them but they weren't designed to work together. And we've been trying to figure this out for a long time. I appreciate your commitment to doing your part to help solve this thorny health policy problem. And uh, today, I also thank you for being my guest on a Health Policy. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.